0: You're listening to Conversations on Strategy, a U.S. Army War College press production focused on national security affairs. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Conversations on Strategy welcomes Dr. C. Anthony Pfaff and Adam Henschke. Faf is the Research Professor of Strategy in the Military Profession and Ethics at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute. He's also the co-author of Trusting AI, Integrating Artificial Intelligence into the Army's Professional Expert Knowledge, with Christopher J. Lawrence, Bree M. Washburn, and Brett A. Carey. Henschke is an assistant professor in the philosophy section at the University of Twente in the Netherlands and co-author of the article, Minotaurs Not Centaurs, The Future of Manned Unmanned Teaming with Robert J. Sparrow. Welcome to Conversations on Strategy. Dr. Pfaff, why don't you start this conversation with a quick overview of the relationship between trust and AI and why trust matters for military AI.
1: Thanks, Stephanie. I'm very happy to be here, When I look at this, I come at it from the perspective of a profession. For me, the question of trusting AI is wrapped up into how does the impact of using AI affect clients' trust for the professional and for the profession itself. For me, that then becomes a question of how we integrate AI into the profession's expert knowledge. That happens in basically three different levels. First, of course, is the system itself. As a minimum condition, you expect the system to be effective. That is, it's able to produce the intended effect at least as well, if not better, than human-only systems. That output needs to be predictable and understandable, where predictability means the system's consistently doing what it's intended to do and understandable, in that it does so for reasons that are at least intelligible to those using it. But in a professional context, it's not enough for the technology to be reliable and professionals simply understand it. For this to work, the client has to trust it too. And that's because at the professional level, clients rely on professionals because they don't have the relevant expertise to provide the service themselves or assess whether professionals provided the best service they could. Medical analogy is my doctor tells me I have cancer. I can go to another doctor and get that diagnosis verified, but I'm not really in a position to assess that diagnosis myself, and neither is my friend Adam, even though he might give me better news than the doctors giving. So that means that clients have to trust that the professional is not going to take advantage of their ignorance or use their expertise to the client's disadvantage. So that there's sort of a normative position that the professional takes relative to the client where the client understands and the professional understands what they're doing is subject to moral obligation beyond the simple transaction of service user and service provider. Now, reliability can provide that basis, but that requires time. And also requires the features of the system that is both predictable and understandable. Then the last part is at the level of profession. For that client trust to be plausible, there's got to be trust that the profession as an institution is capable of training and certifying professionals and capable of governing them as well and holding them accountable. So when my oncologist, through negligence, gets the diagnosis wrong, there's a sanction. Now, I'm not in a position necessarily to pose a sanction or even to assess there's a sanction. I want the institution, though, to be able to do that and be self-correcting in that regard. So if you accept the military as a kind of profession, which I do at least, then you can see where the problem's going to be for trusting AI. And it's going to be at those last two levels. At the system level, we're getting better and better and better, right? Systems are getting more and more effective. They're getting capable of doing more and more things. And we're getting better at learning how to use them. What needs to be there as well, though, is the idea that the professionals only use these systems with the interest of the client in mind. In the case of the military, that's the state and the society it represents. And that the institution is capable of a building the right kind of system, acquiring the right kinds of systems, and then holding professionals accountable for using that system in the right kind of way to get the right kind of results. Those are the ingredients for trust. I think there's varying degrees of difficulty in meeting them, but I'll stop
2: here. So one thing to pick up on on what Tony was saying, you're talking about some of the more moral features around trust. So in some of the trust literature, it can be considered reliability or expectation. One of the features of trust that people in philosophy and particularly kind of ethics of trust look at is the goodwill or the intention of the person who is being trusted. It's not enough to say Tony will do what he is expected to do. That's one form of trust. But Tony is motivated toward my outcomes or my interests. And where this becomes interesting in relation to the military and military AI, as Tony was saying, we've got to look at the institutions. Can we accurately understand and suggest when the military is acting in a particular trust towards best interests? And second, can we say that intentionality is a thing for machines? Does AI have intentionality generally? And can it have intentionality in a moral sense in the way in which we think of trust in this, this kind of human way? So I think there there's some of the features around military AI that add to the complexity of understanding notions of trust.
1: There's got to be belief that the professional is using that expert knowledge for the client's advantage, not necessarily the professional. So I think that's a really good point. And that's an interesting point, too, on the point about intentionality. As I understand the way, for instance, generative AI like ChatGPT works, it's basically making predictions about language tokens based on a prompt. So it sees your prompt, and then based on its access to a huge database with different kinds of parameters, it then figures out what it thinks is the most likely language token, which could be a word or prefix or suffix. But it's not considering the actual content, as I understand it, of the prompt. Under those conditions, I would think it'd be very hard to see where intent, other than intent to make predictions, would come in.
2: This is one of the really hard challenges around AI generally, and particularly in the military context. As humans, we give up some level of discretion and decision-making capacity to AI. That's part of the purpose that it's it's going to be used for. But if we're giving it up to a non-human agent, effectively, do we lose out on that moral motivation, and those moral intentions here? That's of a particular importance in the military context.
0: Machines making decisions versus the ideal of human control. What do we need to consider?
2: As a little bit of context, some people might in the audience be familiar with the notion of meaningful human control, but it's this idea that, okay, if we have AI or machines making decisions for things, particularly if they're morally relevant decisions, such as the decision to use lethal force, we want a human involved in some important way in the steps around those decisions. So that's the basic idea of meaningful human control, machines making decisions, but you want a human at some important step where we've got something that's of special moral significance. Maybe, Tony, you might have more of a grasp on meaningful human control or the debates around it at the moment.
1: So the first thing I'd want to go back to our earlier conversation about what the machine is doing, and a lot of ways it's not really making a decision, not in the way they say human is. Like we said before, it's not really considering the content. It's not deciding whether or not to shoot X. It's making predictions about what to do based on the amount of pixels it's got, based on its assessment of pixels being processed or whatever sensor data you have. So it's running sensor data through a harness and making predictions about what that sensor data is relative to the things it's been told to find. So that's your first step of human control. And there's things you can do there, even within the machine, to address ethical concerns. So the first thing is I'm only going to have it look for, to shoot, things that are legitimate targets, like a tank. That's accounting for some of our values already, just by limiting what it will target. But I might actually also want to have it identify things that I don't want to shoot and in order to ensure that a my calculations of collateral harm are perhaps more precise and it then allows the commander or operator even to make better assessments on how to use it which again is a function of human control so in trusting ai the idea that we had was at least at the current state of technology how much i rely on the machine and how much i rely on the human a lot of it depends on two things how confident the machine is in its predictions and the risk level of the commander. For instance, in open sea, where the only thing in range is something that you're allowed to shoot, my risk tolerance might be very high. If the AI says 50% enemy missile, and there's no humans around, I'm going to shoot it. However, if I'm in an urban environment fighting a regular warfare and it says 40% tank, I might say my risk level for tolerating things like collateral harm or even friendly casualties is too low, so I'm going to intervene more. And what you can do is you can use a fuzzy logic controller that can help the machine help you figure out when and where to do those kinds of interventions. So the commander can look at and say, oh, 80% tank, there's a fair amount of civilians in the area, so it'll recommend someone maybe in the validation process that you might have otherwise skipped. Now, what if it also said 80% tank, 10% school bus, because I've also trained it to look for things that I really don't want to shoot, like school buses and hospitals. Then that can actually initiate another level or another set of instructions for both humans and machines that enable better teaming. So those are ways that you can inject human control without necessarily sacrificing. And that's, I guess, the thing that we need to interject here. The whole tension is you're sacrificing the speed of the machine in order to have the control of the human. And our point is that that's a bit of a false dilemma, just because you get better output when you have the right kind of teaming. You get more effective even from just a practical point of view when you have humans that are reviewing what the machine does, making corrections, teaching, curating the data, training the algorithm, and training the model. And figuring out how that process works in order to optimize this output given the sense of urgency you have is, I think, where you're going to find meaningful human control. Simply saying. It's all human or all machine, little in between. And I think categories like human in the loop, on the loop, and in the loop aren't as useful as they used to be because humans are interacting in this process from acquisition all the way to employment in ways that are too complicated for that as a simple model.
2: This goes back to Tony's earlier point of viewing these things in the context of the institution. When a lot of the early debates were happening around war robots, lethal autonomous weapon systems, it was often focused on one single decision, you know. Should you go ahead and kill or not kill? Whereas now, as Tony's saying, we're recognizing that there's this wide institutional aspect here from acquisition all the way up to post battle damage assessment and things like that. Humans and machines are increasingly interacting as teams throughout that whole process in a very dynamic, very responsive and hopefully kind of agile and sensitive way.
0: Adam, give us an overview, please, of the Minotaur paper that you co-authored with Rob Sparrow.
2: This picks up on the human teaming things that Tony had mentioned, and the basic idea of the paper is to think of the relationship between the machine, or particularly here, the AI, and the human operators. This idea was proposed by Rob Sparrow, and he approached me to help co-author this paper with him, so I want to give him credit for this idea. There was quite an influential paper by Paul Scharr, which looked at human AI Teaming in terms of centaurs. That was the descriptive term that he used. And in that, the idea was you've got a human making the decisions. So you've got the human part that's thinking about things and then directing robots and the robots go out and do the things that the human wants it to do. On Charles' paper, he envisaged this like a centaur. You've got the human part that's doing thinking and then the robot parts are out doing the legwork. Rob's point that we developed that in the paper was it's probably equally, if not more likely, that we'll get things much more like a minotaur. And here, the idea is it's the machine that does the strategic high-level thinking and the direction or suggestion of activities, and it's the humans that go out and actually do the thing. And so this is based on the idea that there's a lot of things that we find very hard to do, that computers find easy to do. Pattern recognition, high-level, high-speed data analysis, these things, this is far beyond the capacity of most humans. But on the flip side, there's a lot of things that humans find really, really easy that robots and machines still find very hard to do. So one of the classic examples is drinking a cup of coffee. It's really easy for me to look at a cup, grab it and drink it. Whereas for a robot, there's a whole bunch of visual data that needs to be brought in, a bunch of movement, kinetic data that then has to be tied with kind of directing it towards the mouth and so on. And so to bring this back to the minotaurs thing, What we were arguing is a lot of the things that are actually in the strength set of AI machines, computers, et cetera, are actually going to be the more high level strategic directional things like this is what you need to do and this is how you do it. Whereas the human skills are things like running through a physical landscape. That's something that we find really, really easy to do. And that's actually quite hard and quite challenging for robots. So the idea here is going back to the Minotaur, you've got kind of a monstrous creation where the machine is doing the thinking and the human body is doing the acting. So that's the basic idea of the Minotaur's paper. Going back to this human teaming stuff that the machines, the computers, et cetera, they will be doing a lot more of the directing. The human soldiers will be doing a lot more of the physical activity in conflict.
0: Tell me about automation bias.
2: Series of studies have suggested that the way in which information and particularly options are presented to you by a machine, by AI, by a computer, The way it's presented will have an impact on the options you take. If there is an option that says we've identified this person as a target, the automation bias is the human operator is more likely to accept that this is a target rather than push back on it. So that's the very simple idea of it. It's an important
1: point. Even if you come at AI knowing that it has limitations, you're an operator or even a commander, you may even accept there's going to be a certain level of error. You might be willing most of the time to take a second and check it. But there's always that moment where you just don't have that kind of time. Cause I can legislate or establish policies where there's a review for any lethal decision. But if that review takes longer than it's gonna take for the enemy to overrun my position, in those situations then we, you know, worry about are we going to give too much to the machine? And that's where you have a function of policy really can't override human nature because I think we're all familiar with the Vincennes incident. This is even just an automated system. There's no real AI being used here, but the system identified an airliner as an Iranian F-14. And even though the system was not unautomatic, automatic, humans were in the loop. They still pushed the button because they trust the machine over other data they were receiving that suggested that there might be something to question. Then the question becomes, what kind of policies and also what kind of training? What do soldiers need to be able to do and know in order to overcome it? Now, I was reading the other day a very interesting article that suggested that automation bias is going to be a much bigger problem than authoritarian regimes than, say, non-authoritarian regimes. The idea being that when militaries were independent thinking is reserved for very high levels, at lower levels, it's automation bias is going to be exacerbated, not so much that they trust the machines anymore than anybody else. But because they don't question the decision to employ them in the first place. Now, don't get me wrong, we have our own issues with automation bias. But what that tells me is that maybe what we need to do to help overcome it is cultivate independent thinking and open-mindedness, as well as ensuring the operators and commanders are educated and trained at a certain level. This comes back to the professional piece. There will need to be a certification that someone would have to go through to say that they can make sense of the output and then the reasonable thing to act on it. And this is where I think the Minotaur Centaur model is actually kind of interesting. The AI functions in the Minotaur model are still kind of routine. You're right to point out these are things machines do better. If I'm planning a route as someone who's planned routes, it's boring. And this is stuff machines are very good at, but they're only as good at it as the information that they're acting on. There was an example in Iraq where there was a route-choosing algorithm that was helping select routes, and there was one route that was particularly dangerous, so nobody went on it. One day, the machine said, oh, it's green, and they sent a convoy on it, and it got attacked. The reason it didn't have any attack data for that route is because no one was using it. The machine didn't pick up on that, and neither did the human being. And I think right now, that's still on the human being to figure that out. That's where I think humans on the other side of the minotaur, right, You know, still play a role, because one thing I think humans still do better is take into account things the machine wasn't designed to or didn't anticipate. That's one simple example, but I can imagine at higher levels where the general's role really is, so the AI functions as staff, right? It's like, who picks the target in the military? It's not the general. It's the staff. You think of like a core level targeting staff. It's the majors and the sergeants and the chief warrant officers who pick the target. The commander decides whether to fight in the first place. The commander also may decide on whether or not to engage the target, but we want to reserve that decision perhaps at that level because the commander can take into account things that the machine might not have otherwise been able to. And you can train staffs, obviously, to do that as well. But that's where I think the human still has a role. The machine is limited by its design in ways that the humans aren't. So it seems to me that, I don't know, Minotaur has two heads, one's human.
2: (laughs) I have had the idea for a follow-up paper using the Hydra For these sorts of reasons, when you've got multiple sources of information and decision-making capacity, that poses a set of issues. I think to answer your question, first of all, to clarify with this Minotaurs argument, Rob and I aren't necessarily saying that we're in favour of this Minotaurs model. We're drawing attention to the fact that things are probably going to be a bit different to or more complicated than the Centaurs model suggested. Second to this, and I think this goes really nicely to to one of your points, Tony, about the role of professionalization. And again, seeing these as teams and complicated teams with a whole set of decisions throughout, we need to focus on the professionalization so that those people who are engaging with these systems, who are receiving suggestions or arguably commands from AI, as you were saying, A, they have the technological knowledge to understand how and why that decision might have been made. But second, in terms of the training, I think we need to ensure that training and professionalization inculcates in people, whether it's at the high level, mid-level, or on the ground, the willingness and habit of pushing back on the information that's presented to them and the decisions that are presented to them. So I think this is one way, maybe it's a little bit optimistic, but one way of pushing back on this automation bias By training people and professionalising people, not just in the ways in which these systems work, but encouraging and developing a habit in them to push back, that should help deal with some of this automation bias and it might also hopefully reduce the likelihood of militaries falling prey to this authoritarian bias that you suggest as well. So this would be one of the ideals of the the professionalisation practice to help people push back so that we reduce automation bias and reduce the likelihood of authoritarian bias.
0: What role does distributed responsibility play in this context?
2: This idea of distributed responsibility, there's probably other phrases in the, in the literature that talk about this. But the way that I think of distributed responsibility is often in simple ethics discussions, we try and find who is the relevant causal agent and then see if they can be held responsible for some outcome. If I was to drive a car and kill someone, then if I drove negligently or dangerously, then I'd be held accountable. The idea of distributed responsibilities, well, we might want to hold me accountable, but perhaps I was, I don't know, drinking at a bar. The bar staff knew that I was drinking, was very drunk, and gave me my keys to drive home anyway. There, we might arguably say, well, the bar staff, they also bear some of the responsibility here. And so the idea of distributed responsibility in the military and AI context is, okay, maybe someone in the field might need to be held accountable and held culpable for If a wrong targeting decision is made or something like that, there would also be other people in this chain of command that also to be held accountable. And this isn't an uncommon thing in the military. Command responsibility is a pretty standard issue in, in military ethics and civil military relations. But where AI complicates things and makes things more interesting, perhaps, is that the range of people who can be held accountable in this distributed responsibility can potentially expand. Here, it's not just the soldier and the commander, but it might be the designers, it might be the people who are engaged in procurement, it might even be some of the people who are involved in the training and professionalization, as we were just saying, that you've got a wider set of people who have played a relevant causal role in the given outcome. And as a result, we might have a distributed responsibility of who can be held to account. The
1: other problem for AI is not only is it distributed the way Adam was talking about, every one of those responsible actors could have done everything right and you still have something that goes very wrong, the machine changes its capabilities based on how you use it. As it learns, it does so in unpredictable ways. So to me, that's where the gap that people talk about creeps in. We can all do it right and still have something wrong. And I think to the extent that, kind of one of Adam's earlier points, the human-machine pairing is better than, you know, does this less often, is more reliable than the human-only or the machine-only systems, then I think you still move forward, but you still have to figure out what you do about accountability in that regard. There are options. I don't think the idea of holding the commander completely responsible is going to be a very good way to go, just because A, that can disincentivize use of the technology to the extent it actually gets us better outcomes, even from an ethical point of view, that there's a problem there. But if we just keep it to the current level of command responsibility, where there's an intent and an act, and then for the commander should have had knowledge by virtue of their position of the bad act, you risk inserting an incentive where one might want to hide behind the machine, say, well, you know, I did everything right, I can't account for it. And then you have lots of violations, perhaps, or potentially, that no one's accountable for. And that creates its own kinds of problems. I think there's ways to address it. And again, you know, if this is happening relatively seldom compared to alternatives, we might, looking at tort law, take a view where, all right, you know, institutionally we're responsible for the harm, so there'll be some sort of compensation without treating it as a criminal act where individuals actually suffer a sanction. So that's like one way to go about it. But that's, Just another thing that AI introduces into the idea of responsibility, not just the distribution, but the fact everyone in the distribution could be doing the right thing. And still we have these harms, for lack of a better word, that we have to deal with.
2: And I think on that point that this is one of the interesting things where what we're looking at is system level effects. The individuals, maybe even AI, are all working well, but in combination, somehow some set of problems arise. And going back to Tony's earlier points about trust, I think here, this is one of the things where we can look at trust in the system as a really, really important feature that we want to ensure that these systems do explore if and when problems like this arise, that they take seriously the notion of distributed responsibility. But also as Tony was saying, if there are situations where maybe each individual has acted properly, Still, there's a bad outcome. We have some recognition of that bad outcome. And also the system then needs to be revisited in a way to prevent or reduce the likelihood of that outcome happening again. And this goes to the system level trust and also the intentionality that we were discussing before, that humans oversee the system and make sure that it is acting in the way in which we want it to act. And so that kind of ties a bunch of these different points together, I think.
0: What happens if a soldier decides on one course of action in a conflict zone, but AI recommends something different? Should we ever trust AI over the soldier? And if so, when should this happen? And when should it definitely not happen?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's either or. Because even within human teams, it takes a fair amount of training together and operating together before you develop the kind of trust necessary to solve that problem among humans. I mean, human-machine pairing is going to be the same thing. What's going to make it work is that the humans, like Adam was talking about earlier, understand what the machine is doing. The fact the machine's not really considering content, it's just making predictions, at least with current technologies, suggests that maybe the question the human asks is, am I taking something to account the machine isn't designed to? To be able to do that, the human has to know enough about the design of the machine. I don't think we all have to be AI engineers, but know something enough about the design of the machine to say, well, wait a minute, here's where it might have a blind spot. And to the extent the human can bring those reasons to bear for choosing the human judgment over the machine judgment, then you might go with the human judgment. To the extent the human can't bring that to bear, and it is the case that the machine was just able to process the data and the information in a much more comprehensive fashion than the human could, we might then go with the machine judgment. But that's what the human's going to have to be able to do is say, all right, the machine is working as designed. I cannot detect any blind spots, uh, we'll go with the machine. But that requires a level of knowledge about machine and how it works and where those blind spots may arise. So again, it's not either or, but it's going to require a lot of experience with machines in the context in which they're used before you're going to really be in a position to make an intelligible decision one way or the other.
2: The challenge or the gambit is you need to get the experience to know what to do in the situation. But... For some questions or some decisions, you want to be very careful about getting that experience in the first place. What I would think here is a kind of gradual rollout of these human machine teams so that the first sets of experiences and practices are less morally important than latter ones. So you can actually build up a bank of experience. As Tony was saying, to understand where and when the blind spots will occur, What is the best way of answering this situation? Should the human defer to the machine? Should the human reject the machine? But to build that up through experience rather than going, okay, we're going to go into a really complicated conflict scenario. We've got a whole bunch of things going on and we're going to let the machines start making decisions right straight away. We haven't rolled out and tested enough in the field to develop that experience to know which ways our trust should be directed.
0: Listeners, you can read Dr. Faff's work at press.armywarcollege.edu slash monographs slash 959. You can find Henschke's work at press.armywarcollege.edu slash parameters. Look for volume 53, issue one. Tony, Adam, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank
0: you. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform.